0: Hello everyone, my name is Joseph Patridge. I'm the director of the Wirth Institute for Austrian and Central European Studies, and I'm pleased to be able to welcome you to the latest in this series of podcasts on various themes exploring Central European history. Today I'd like to talk with you a bit about the internment of Austro-Hungarians and others by the Canadian authorities during the First World War. I thought that with the important Remembrance Day holiday on the horizon, this would be an appropriate theme to discuss in some detail. Many people have heard about the internment of, say, Japanese-Americans or Japanese-Canadians during the Second World War, but I think the internment of Austro-Hungarians and others as enemy aliens during and immediately following the First World War is less well known. Today's presentation will be based partly on ongoing research being conducted here at the Worth Institute, together with the Cool Ukrainian Canadian Studies Center at the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies. My presentation will also try to place this process of internment during the First World War from approximately 1914 to 1920 in the broader context of internments and incarcerations, concentration camps, which are increasingly a topic of historical analysis. Richard Dove, in his introduction to the book he wrote or he edited on Britain's internment of enemy aliens in two world wars, wrote, quote, the internment of enemy aliens by the British government in two world wars is a subject which remains largely hidden from history, unquote. He continues, internment in both world wars was a confused and shabby policy. And finally, the internment of enemy aliens probably still remains outside mainstream historiography, unquote. I'd like to think that the research being conducted here at the Worth Institute and um, in conjunction with the Canadian Institute for Ukrainian Studies will help to fill in some gaps about the study of the internments of the First World War. It's estimated that several hundred thousand civilians were interned and or deported in the various countries during the First World War. And in fact... Some people believe that civilian internment is a particularly novel feature of the war. One of the problems for the poor men, women, and children interned in these camps during the war is that their place in international law was unclear. The international treaties that had been signed leading up to the war covered the situation for prisoners of war, but it was unclear what to do with the civilians. As I said, here at the University of Alberta's Worth Institute and at the Canadian Institute for Ukrainian Studies, we've been looking at this phenomenon through the particular example of the internment of Austro-Hungarians during the First World War. Back in 2014, the two institutes jointly held a conference at the Cave and Basin National Historic Site in Banff, Alberta. Titled Canada, The Great War and Enemy Aliens, 1914 to 1920. This project, this conference, was possibly partly funded by a grant from the Endowment Council of the Canadian First World War Internment Recognition Fund. And I'd like to take this opportunity to again thank that the administrators of that fund for the financial support. Research is continuing with the support of our colleague Matthias Kaltenbrunner. Uh, at the Institute for East European History, our partner institute at the University of Vienna, who has undertaken to copy or photograph large numbers, amounts of evidence from Viennese archives dealing with this phenomenon of the internment of Austro Hungarians by the uh, British authorities and by the Canadian authorities. I'll talk more about that a bit later in today's presentation. I do also want to say that some of what I'm talking about today is the result of a presentation or is connected to a presentation I gave in 2018 um, at a conference called Thinking Mountains, where Meg Stanley, Parks Canada historian, and I took the participants of the conference, or some of them, it was held at the Banff Center for Arts and Creativity in Banff, we took them out to a field trip To the Cave and Basin National Historic Site, considered to be the birthplace of the Parks Canada system, uh, to show them and give them a tour of the exhibition there, the permanent exhibition called Enemy Aliens, Prisoners of War, Canada's First World War Internment Operations, 1914 to 1920. So Meg Stanley and I uh, gave presentations about the internment process and then we took people through on a tour. And I'd recommend if you're in Banff at the Cave and Basin National Historic Site to go down the trail there or maybe ask the rangers if they could help you to find the permanent exhibition dealing with the internment. The reason it's there is because one of the large camps set up during the First World War, by the Canadian authorities, was located at the Cave and Basin. But as I said, I want to talk today not simply about the internment of Austro-Canadian, Austro-Hungarians by the Canadians, but about the broader phenomenon of um, the incarceration of civilians during before, in the period of leading up to the First World War and during the First World War itself. Uh, I, I also want to point out that this research is related to uh, the interest of the Worth Institute, not only in Central European history, which is what we've talked about uh, before, what I've been talking about in this podcast series, but also the Worth Institute's interest in Austro Hungarians who came to Canada or maybe North America, but who came to Canada in particular um, in the history that they have left behind. In fact, just last fall, about a year ago, we held an international conference at the Pier 21 National Museum of Immigration in Halifax, Nova Scotia, called Transatlantic Dreams. Uh, This conference was particularly dedicated to the theme of the migration of Central Europeans to Canada, which really started picking up in the late 19th century uh, and it continues on a much lower scale, a smaller scale, all the way till today with various ups and downs uh, in various periods, as you could find out if you went to the Pier 21 Museum in Halifax. But for our purposes uh, today, I'd like to just briefly talk about some of the predecessors of the internments that the Canadians did here in Canada during the First World War. Apparently, it's becoming increasingly uh, accepted that there's kind of a standard genealogy of internment and concentration Uh, in the 20th century. This is a major phenomenon of the 20th century, as you know, um, tied very closely to the development of that new technology of barbed wire, which was developed in the mid to late 19th century and played such a role in the changing landscape and the settling and colonizing of North America. Uh, This barbed wire, used often for livestock, also increasingly came to be used to in turn and incarcerate people and i use the basic chronology or study of uh, the history of internment camps established by the journalist Andrea Pitzer uh, in her book which i think i would recommend to you if you're interested in the broader phenomenon which she titled what long night a global history of concentration camps pitzer goes back a little bit before the First World War to trace the history that she's describing. What she thinks are one of the places that people often point to when they think about the beginnings of the uh, internment process is the Cuban-American-Spanish War and the conflicts leading up to it as the kind of first in of these, camp, these camps and the use of the internment camps. And interestingly enough, this brings us back to a Queen Regent, a Habsburg Queen Regent of Spain who I mentioned before, the famous Maria Cristina, who a few weeks ago I told you about in relationship with the World's Fair in Barcelona in 1888. Well, but as Queen Regent, her government also is responsible for trying to put down the various uh, um, insurrections in the Spanish colonies in, Cu- in Cuba. And in 1896, her government sent the infamous General Valeri- Valeriano Weiler, a Nicolau, the Marquis of Tenerife, to Cuba to set up to try to deal with the insurgency there, the Cuban insurgency, and the introduction of the policy of reconcentration which he set up to try to deal with this insurgency by removing the rural population and putting, concentrating them into cities to try to stop the support for the guerrillas fighting the Spanish Army uh, has become known as the kind of first example of these kind of concentration camps. Uh, Weiler was so uh, what demonized by say the American press for these operations uh, that it's considered that his operations and this concentration camp policy that he started is one of the major things leading to the American intervention uh, in the war there, uh, starting the so-called Spanish-American War in 1898. Uh, Weiler himself started this process of concentration in 1896. It went on into 1897, and it's estimated that Oh, maybe as much as 300,000 men, women, and children were moved from the countryside in Cuba into these concentration zones to try to separate them from the combatants. Um, and while the numbers vary in the estimates, it seems that from tens of thousands or maybe even as many as hundreds of thousands of people died as a result of these reconcentration policies uh, of the Spanish military trying to deal with this insurgency in Cuba. The second major example that Pitzer points to in her work, which people think of as an important step in the way that um, this policy of concentration camps developed, is interestingly enough and maybe ironically enough tied to the U.S. Army, which had then intervened in Cuba uh, in 1898 uh, and their attitude toward the insurgents in the Spanish Philippines only a couple years later. Now, of course here, this is a podcast about Central European history. I'm not gonna go into all the details about what happened with the American army in the Philippines as their allies against the Spanish became their enemies against American occupation, But uh, the infamous General Jacob Hurd Smith, the American military uh, leader, as part of the process of trying to deal with the anti-American insurrection in the Philippines, started a similar process of internment uh, in 1901-1902, a uh, vicious, brutal internment policy to try to uh, cut the um, insurgents off from their sources of supplies, round them up. And again, while the numbers are unclear, this concentration policy uh, really did seem to lead to the, fall, the death of many, many people, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands. Again, the numbers in the literature I've read are unclear. It's difficult to estimate. Many of these people, as is the case and often in these concentration camps as they're set up, were uh, died as a result of diseases, malnutrition. And in uh, the summer, spring and summer of 1902, it was particularly a cholera outbreak that seems to have really... Uh, devastated the concentration camp uh inhabitants in the Philippines. So those are two major examples in the history of concentration camps and internments um, that I wanted to point to, but probably for the Canadian example, the most important one is the way that the Canadian forces and the British forces more generally uh, participated in the South African War or Boer War. Uh, That was a series of conflicts in South Africa which uh, were which also resulted in an insurgency after the British annexed sections of South Africa, the Transvaal, the Orange Free State, uh, and began a policy of black, of uh, scorched earth uh, under uh, Herbert Kitchener, the lieutenant general uh, responsible for the British army there, um, a big series, a giant uh, system of internment camps was set up, both for the Boer uh, population, the white population involved, but also for the black African population. And I think this Major enterprise late in the Boer War uh, in 1901-1902 the war ended in uh, the treaty in May of 1902 uh, is an important precedent uh, for what the Canadians then do in Canada in the First World War and in fact one of the primary figures responsible for the internment operations, the leader of the internment operations here in Canada during the First World War was one of the military leaders of the Canadian unit in um, operation in South Africa. This is the famous Sir William Dillon Otter, uh, who was brought out of retirement during the First World War uh, at 71 years of age to supervise the process of internment here in Canada. And one of the major sources we have for the uh, internment camps and for the process of internment of thousands of Austro-Hungarians and others during the First World War is the 1921 report authored by uh, General Uh, William Dillon Otter, who was, as I said, the commander of one of the important political, I'm sorry, military units of the Canadian Army. Uh, And actually, he went on to be the first Canadian-born head of the Canadian Army. Um, He was uh, the commander of a Canadian regiment of infantry, uh, which uh, did an excellent job in fighting the Boer insurgents uh, during the, the war. But the process of winning that war also uh, entailed creating a very elaborate system of internment camps, uh, some for the white populations that were caught up in the war, but particularly a massive set of camps, a system of camps set up for the African, the black African population. Um, already by the end of June of 1901, over almost 12,000 black refugees were concentrated into various camps. Uh, and a Canadian engineer, G, G.F. de Lopinier, um, is the one who was given responsibility for organizing the so-called Native Refugee Department, which was supposed to then oversee this elaborate system of camps, which I think ultimately ended up Numbering something like 60 or more concentration camps, especially along the railroad lines in the occupied territories uh, in South Africa, where uh, the population was uh, forced to live on very difficult circumstances. Um, and while the kind of blowback in the press in the British Isles about what was happening in South Africa with the white. Concentration camps uh, resulted in civilians taking over those camps. The black concentration camps, which were set up, stayed under the control of the military. And the military was clearly interested in using the black labor, the lab, the men and particularly the men in these concentration camps for their labor, which is something we'll see again in the way that the Canadian authorities deal with the um, Austro-Hungarians in the First World War internment camps. So as I said, the war ends in 1902, the Boer War ends in 1902 uh, and that means that um, uh, it's about almost exactly twelve years later when the Second World War breaks out. When the Second World War breaks out, the British declare war on uh, Austria-Hungary in August. Well at first, I guess they declare war on Germany, uh, then they declare war. They declare they, they notify the Canadians that they had declared war on Germany on fourth of August. Then a few days later on twelfth of August the British declare war on Austria-Hungary. And here in Canada, very quickly, uh, the Federal War Measures Act is passed uh, on August 22nd, so just a few days after the declaration of war, which gives the legal basis for the internment of Austro-Hungarians and enemy aliens in general. This is very similar to what happened in, uh, the, United, in the United Kingdom back at home, where uh, policies and laws were passed that basically by 1915 authorized the internment of all men of military age from an enemy country and I think military age was defined as something like from 17 to 55 or so it was a very broad concept which we see then reflected here in Canada too because uh, thousands of Austro-Hungarians and other enemy aliens were then either Forced to report to camps, concentration camps, there's a series of 24 of them set up across the uh, country, or maybe I shouldn't use the word concentration camps here, I'll use the word internment camps, Uh, and according to the official records, uh, 8,579, uh, men were interned, uh, of which most of them were from Austria-Hungary, almost 70%. There were also a few, th- of those, a few thousand uh, German citizens, uh, a few hundred Ottoman subjects, and some uh, Bulgarians, uh, involved as well. Uh, according to the official records uh, of the 8,579, uh, who were in these camps, uh, 3,138 of them were classified as prisoners of war, though I have to say, looking at the records that I've seen, Uh, prisoners of war it was a very loose term and often the records called them prisoners of war maybe only because some of them had had military experience or were in the reserve. Austria-Hungary like all, I think most European countries at the time had compulsory male military service so it meant that almost all of the Austrian men, Austro-Hungarian men who came to Canada as migrants immigrants uh, had some kind of military experience and many of them were of draft age, uh, or could have served or did have did have military experience in units abroad and could have been recalled. And that was one of the justifications for internment was that maybe they would go back. um, uh, They could go back to Austria or Hungary and fight against the um, uh, the British and their allies. Here in Canada, uh, these camps were set up, but it wasn't just that there were camps. Uh, there were also uh, a series of responsibilities for these enemy aliens, the ones who weren't interned. Uh, those uh, were that they had to report to. Often to the police force, uh, they would have to um, uh, keep a record or say that they where they were where they were at any given time. Pay a registration fee. Often, uh, this was another side of the um, concentration of the internment operations. Was not everybody went into internment, but something like over eighty thousand of the um, uh, internees. Uh, or uh, Austrian, Austro-Hungarians and other um, enemy aliens had to report regularly to the police. So the total of people involved in this operation was over 90,000 people, which may not sound so large nowadays with Canada being as large as it was. But remember, in 1916, the census of Canada estimated there were only about 8 million people living in Canada. So it's a much larger percentage of the population that are either interned or forced to register and Monitor and report often monthly to the local police um, than it seems on the surface when you think about these 85,000 people responsible to be registered and 8,500 internees. Most of the internees were men, Um, some of the internees had. wives or children wives and or children so there were two camps that were set up that would also take the wives and children and the one that i visited or the site that i visited recently was in vernon british columbia Uh, that also had women and children but most of these camps were for men and uh, often as i'll talk about in a minute Uh, the men there were put to work Uh, the idea was to use their labor um, for the war effort or somehow for the good of the whole I should point out too while you're thinking about it or while I'm talking about it that um, this similar kind of process took place around the whole British Empire and a lot of the sources we have and we're doing research on and that Dr. Kaltenbrunner helped us collect uh, show the internments going on in I don't know Pacific Islands and India and Africa it's not that this is the specific thing to Canada or the British Empire in Canada. Also, the Isle of Man back in the British Isles or back in Europe was transformed basically into a giant internment camp. There, I think it was mostly German citizens but also Austro-Hungarians who were there. Um, And even once the Americans declared war against Austria-Hungary, which happened in December of 1917, the Americans also set up a much smaller system of internment camps, uh, where it's estimated that something like six thousand or seven thousand Austro-Hungarian and German civilians and POWs were put into camps, mostly located in Utah and Georgia. Which brings me to another important point about the sources that we have for this internment. They're not only Otter's records, as I said before, um, uh, his official report and the government documents that I will link to on our website, so you can go to the Archives Canada site and see what's left. Unfortunately, a lot of the archives. Uh, records apparently have been destroyed dealing with the World War I internments. But also we have a lot of records uh, that the Americans collected on behalf of the Austro-Hungarians because the Americans represented Austro-Hungarian interests after the uh, Austro-Hungarians were uh, in war, a state of war with the British. Uh, that goes on, obviously, from August 1914 to December 1917. After that, when the Americans are belligerents as well, the Swedish take over as the official representatives of the Austro-Hungarians. Most of what we have are the reports that were given to the Americans and then sent on to Vienna uh, about the internment of Austro-Hungarian citizens uh, on the ha- on behalf of um, uh, when the Americans are represented the Austro-Hungarian diplomatic interests. Uh, The Swedes then will be the major uh, representative of the Austro-Hungarian's Uh, into, I think, something like 1921 uh, when um, the state of war is officially ended and the Austrians have an independent uh, republic set up uh, and recognized internationally. Uh, And those records, actually, from the period 1917 to 1921, we're just now working to get access to. Apparently, there are some of them still available in Swedish archives, and that could help us finish the story um, of the internments from the perspective of these international documents. Uh, that were collected first by the American uh, State Department and then by the Swedes. The Austro-Hungarians had been coming to Canada, especially... um Uh, since the 1880s, and there were large numbers of them. In fact, by the first decades of the 20th century, it's estimated that Austria-Hungary was the third largest supplier of immigrants to Canada uh, after the United Kingdom and the United States. There were hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children coming at the invitation of the um, Canadian authorities some of them went back again. It's kind of difficult to get a handle on the total numbers because we have this phenomenon of uh, bilateral migration. So some of the guys would just come here to work in, I don't know, the forestry industry or agriculture, and then they would go back again. Some people went back and forth a few times. Um, but unfortunately for many of the men uh, who were involved, uh, they ended up being stuck here, as did the people who were um, coming here to settle, the settler colonists who were uh, enticed to come to western Canada in particular by promises of homesteads, especially uh, men were given rights over uh, properties that were given to them. Uh, They were colonizing the western part of Canada at this point and it was considered to be um, uh, useful to bring in labor from Central Europe. Uh, Apparently most of the people who came from Austria-Hungary, and this is reflected in the internment documents, came from uh, the poorest regions of Austria-Hungary, the Habsburg territories, crown lands of Bukovina and Galicia. Those territories are now basically divided between Poland, Ukraine, and Romania. But they were the areas that had been acquired relatively recently, mostly in the late 18th century by the Habsburgs, a little bit into the 19th century. uh, And it was a very poor area where there was a lot of reason for out-migration, people moving to Canada. And it's these men, women, and children who move Moved then to Western Canada or other parts of Canada. There's different places where they settled for different reasons. And then when the war broke out in 1914 because they were holders of Austro-Hungarian citizenship, even if they had acquired Canadian citizenship uh, they might be subject to internment or registration. Uh, these were the people who were then stuck and couldn't go back, right? There was no diplomatic representation, relations officially between the Canadians as part of the British Empire and Austria-Hungary for the period between 1914 and 1921, and after 1921, the empire is gone. The Austro-Hungarian Empire is gone. There is no um, what uh, interest on the part of many of the successor states, Czechoslovakia, the kingdom that became Yugoslavia, Austria, Hungary, whatever, uh, to um, worry about all these people who are stuck here. Uh, so it, it's a complicated situation for the Austro-Hungarians. Many of them ended up then being forced to register or forced to work. And I'd like to end my presentation today just by talking about some of the camps uh, where they were sent to. In fact, I just recently got back to looking at some of these camps a few weeks ago. I took a family vacation up into the Rocky Mountains, and I went to Revelstoke National Park, Yoho National Park, I went to Banff National Park and drove through Jasper National Park. And all four of these parks in the Canadian National Park System, some of the most famous of the parks in the Canadian National Park System, were the sites of internment camps during the First World War. These internment camps have left not much uh, in the way of physical evidence. They were temporary barracks. Often they were... um, flimsy tents surrounded by barbed wire, work camps. This was a compulsory labor system. uh, And we don't have much physical evidence anymore. I went to the Revelstoke City Museum and uh, the curator there was nice enough to talk with me a bit about what they have left. I think they have one um, dinner bell, which they think was from the camp that was there in Revelstoke. Um, They have a, a, a walking stick which was a craft created by one of the internees. And that's pretty much it. Um, I was happy to see, I guess I would say, in Yoho National Park, there is now a a statue and a bit of a display. And I think I'll post a picture I took of this display uh, in French, English, and Ukrainian, uh, pointing out that this was a site of a labor camp. These camps... The men who worked in them were uh, required to work under pretty difficult conditions. If you can imagine working in the Rocky Mountains in the winter and the snow. In fact, there was so much snow, apparently, in the Revelstoke camp area, they eventually just gave up. Uh, they brought these guys in, though, to try to help build the infrastructure for the national parks. And that was the idea of the uh, first Dominion Parks Branch Commissioner, James B. Harkin. Uh, He's sometimes known apparently as the father of the Canadian national park system. And when he was in his late 30s, when the war broke out, he came up with the idea of utilizing the labor which was available to the Canadians um, by um, virtue of the internment operations to help build the infrastructure. He was interested in getting people access to the parks particularly people with automobiles and so what a lot of the uh, men who were interned by the Canadians during the First World War did was build basic things like roads infrastructure. I think in Banff they're given credit for building a little bit of the famous uh, golf course there. If you go to Jasper you'll see some signs around of some of the work they did there. There's the there's a statue at Castle Mountain uh, in Banff area that shows where one of the work camps was where the guys were put to work clearing trees. Um, The reason I was interested in our mountain studies conference and talking about this phenomenon is because I wanted to remind people that when you think about the Canadian national parks, particularly the, the Rocky Mountain national parks which are so important for Canadian national identity, I think it's important to try to keep in mind that the infrastructure, at least the early infrastructure which provided access to people to Um, be able to use these parks and get to know them and make them as famous as they became was the result of this coerced labor uh, from these men who were unluckily um, uh, living in Canada at the time that the First World War broke out. The research is continuing. Stay tuned for future developments. I'm very interested to see. I've been looking through some of these pages and pages of photograph documents that Dr. Kaltenbruner assembled for us, and I'm getting a bit of a sense of where the men came from, where they were arrested. Um, it, it's clear that most of them were people who were probably Ukrainian speakers um, or Polish speakers from the... The duchies that I talked about before, Galicia, Bukovina, large number of people from Bukovina, but I've seen references to people from other places as well. The complication, too, for the Canadian authorities, that you might imagine, as they were thinking about rounding up these people and then keeping them there, is that many of them came from ethnic groups or national groups in the Austro-Hungarian Empire that were advocating for independence or who had representatives advocating for independence from Austria-Hungary. So there were Croatian speakers, for example, or There could have been Italian speakers or uh, the speakers of various languages, uh, say, if there were Czech speakers there, were they really enemy aliens if then, especially after the Americans came into the war and the British decided they were fighting for uh, uh, national independence of groups, uh, were they really enemies? And so it was a complicated story to figure out why some of these people were being interned. On the other hand, the internment operations continued and it wasn't until well into 1920 that the camps finally were closed. So again... Uh Keep an eye out for information. I'll put some stuff on the website about the um, research that we're doing and access to other sources we have, maybe some photographs and things from the sites. Next time you're in uh, uh, Banff National Park, I would really encourage you to go to the Cave and Basin National Historic Site and walk down the road behind it to find the um, museum. Or the small memorial and and exhibit that's set up to remind us that when you think about Canada and Canada's national parks and the great uh, Rocky Mountain parks that are so famous around the world, don't forget that at least part of the way that they became famous and part of the background uh, behind those parks is the story of these Austro-Hungarian men who were put to work building the roads, clearing the forests, chopping the trees. Thanks, as always, for your uh, attention. I hope you enjoyed this podcast series. This is my last one for uh, this uh, run. Um, Thank you also for all of your nice comments, emails. I really appreciate it. If you have a particular topic that you might be interested in relating to Central Europe and the activities of the Worth Institute, drop me an email, and um, I'll think about maybe I can uh, address that in the future. Again, thanks for listening. Goodbye.